You're listening to the Rules of Investing podcast, brought to you by Livewire Markets. My name's James Marley, and I'm your host for this episode. My guest is Dr. Philip Hofflin from Lazard Asset Management, where he's a portfolio manager on the Lazard Select Australian Equity Fund. Now, Philip is a really smart guy, and he's published some extremely interesting research that covers the flow and effects of declining property prices on an economy. It's obviously very relevant to the situation here in Australia at the moment. So in this interview, we get into his latest views on that subject, but we also dig into his value investing philosophy and how he goes about picking stocks and putting together a portfolio. We talk about some specific opportunities, and he also talks about a few of the lessons that he picked up along the way and how he's applying that to identify a few areas of the market that he's pretty cautious on at the moment. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the series. And of course, feel free to share it with friends or colleagues that might also find it interesting. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Philip Hoffman. What was the what was the transition from mathematics and physics to then investing? Was there an initial experience, or was the someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, "Philip, you're you're pretty good with numbers. Maybe you know focus on this." No, look, it, it was always my intent in the sense that you know I spent a fair few years at Melbourne and then Sydney universities doing that, and I enjoyed every second of it. But by the end of it, I knew that I wanted to do something much more broad because I saw far too many people there you know, who fell into the famous trap of you know, knowing more and more about less and less until they knew everything about nothing. Uh, you know, it's, it's very narrow, it's very specialised, and I always had much wider interests. And so I looked around, um, and funds management is, is a great job. You know, I've been incredibly lucky to end up in funds management. It's very interesting, it's a beautiful mixture of you know, everything from politics to history, finance, economics, and just a thousand and one facts of how the world works. Yeah. So I think I've, I'm very fortunate in the job that I have. Do you remember your first investment? I do remember my first investment. Um, but I should probably say that because of my um, uh, sort of background in the university, I came to it fairly late, you know, in my late 20s. And I was very lucky that I joined uh, Tyndall, Tyndall yep. Life at the time, you know, the, uh, the investment team there. It's now Nico. It's now Nico. It has changed its, uh, its name several times since. And I was uh, doubly lucky in the sense that I met Rob Osborne there, who's been my business partner now for 25 years. Mm-hmm. So we've worked together for a very, very long time now. And a lot of, you know, uh, of what I've been able to do and what we've been able to do is the both of us. So in some ways, he's, he's sort of uh, sitting next to me here in this interview yep. because you know, uh, it's been a team effort. Um, various people have sort of commented on us that we are quite different in the sense that you know, Rob's a really great sportsman. And I am definitely fourth quartile, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> when it comes to sport, uh, uh, Rob's the networker. Uh, I'm terrible with names and 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 and, and faces. I, I'm much better with numbers. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're also quite different in the way we look at uh, look at the world. Often, in the sense that Rob's a great decision maker. He can see the black and the white and simplify things. And probably my academic background, I see a lot of shades of grey. Mm-hmm. And I think it really helps to have both. So I think you know all of us always uh, believe that, you know, for us really it is the case that the whole is worth more than the sum of the individual parts. Yeah. Um, 
So that's where I started, and that's where I made my first investment. It happened to be a news corporation, mm -hmm. and I tripled my money. And it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, great start. Um, but you know, it only really came once I was investing, you know, you know, professionally. Yeah. So there wasn't dabbling to start off with. It wasn't with. dabbling to start off with. You don't, no, you don't, no, you don't strike all. me as the person that likes to dabble. You sort of, I, I imagine it's kind of all, all in and, and quite precise. Uh, I, I can honestly say I've only ever once in my life bought a speculative investment, mm. and that was eCorp. Remember, uh, uh, Packer oh, right. had this roll-up. Uh, which had ticker tech and various e-businesses in them in the tech room. Mm. And there was a float and it was very clear it was going to immediately go up like so many others. And I, I, you know, I doubled my money on $2,000 or something like that. But that is the only speculative investment I've ever made in my life. So yeah, you know, right. I usually invest, yeah, the way I invest professionally, which is you know, value investments, conservative, careful ones. Well, that was going to be my next question because I wanted to understand um, now your, your philosophy, you have a value um, you know, framework for thinking about mm -hmm. things. Yes, um, the strategy that you manage is, tends to be quite concentrated. It is, yes. And you really talk about doing things quite different from the index. You often don't own things that are large in the index. So what is it that appeals to you about value investing? Why have you subscribed to that? Um, what does it mean for you? Look, I mean, um, I presume it's always, uh, there's always an element of, 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 of chance in it in the sense that I went to Tyndall and Tyndall had, was then a, a great value shop. Uh, quite a few of the people in the team back then uh, were, you know, um, are still very successful investors today. I'm Jacob Mitchell at Antipodes yeah. and various other people. Um, I should probably say that, you know, um, by early 1999, Tyndall was taken over and uh, we got an offer, Rob and I, from uh, Lazar to start the Australian equity business and we've been there for 20 years now. Yeah. And we've been, that's been a great home and we've been very fortunate with our colleagues there as well. Um, so that was clearly part of the backdrop, but um, the evidence is there, right? Whether um, you look at uh, academic evidence, you know, and, you know, and the evidence and to some degree sort of has a long, it's got a very long history. I mean, Graham and Dodd back in the 30s said this is the way to invest. Yeah. Uh, by the time you get to the 80s and, you know, you know Warren Buffett wrote, you know, wrote that um, appendix in the Intelligent Investor for Benjamin Graham's book. He talks about the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. Yeah. Uh, it's a very famous piece of writing where he sort of provides the first sort of um, anecdotal evidence for so many investors who learned on the, you know, you, know, you know, Benjamin Graham had become very successful. You go to the early 90s and computers were first available and, you know, you get Pharma French 92, the paper that showed, yes, value stocks had actually done better in the past. And that was a big thing at the time because, of course, contradicted efficient market hypothesis. And, you know, and that was in the Journal of Finance, which is the premier journal. And every year they wrote at the end of the year for the most influential article for the year. That one won the competition by the largest winning margin ever. Hmm. Um, and since then, the way I sort of think about it, since then, you know, we've had behavioral finance, um, you know, Tyler, Kahneman, Tversky and those people. And they've really sort of gone from, yes, it does work, to why does it work? Because it, it plays to certain and exploits certain human you know, biases, tries to correct them, and that's really where the, where the value premium you know, derives from. Mm -hmm. But we're having this conversation in the context of a period where value investing as a style, and I, I don't love referring to investing in, in, in style because people say everything. If, not, if you don't have an eye for value, then you're not investing, you're speculating. Yeah. But as a, as a style, it is discussed in the industry, and value seems to have had, a, had an extended period of out of favour. Uh, where some of the bigger names in the industry, um, Grantham last year talked about the fact that potentially the, the, the era of value investing could be, could be coming to an end, or, or he mm -hmm. was even questioning himself. 
What's mm. your response to that? Uh, when does value as a, as a style, when does it have its, its, its renaissance again? Look, I think there's several ways of answering. The first one is that I'm very encouraged when I get people talking about the death of value. So it's a very good sign. Um, I think the first thing we should probably do is, is distinguish between two types of value in the sense that you know, when we go back and uh, on, on Kenneth French's website, you know, you, there's a wonderful data set there. Um, and here's uh, data on you know, the returns for, to value and growth that is high or low post to book, for example, all the way back to 1926. And you can see that enormous outperformance of value over 90 plus years. But you're quite right, in the last 10 years, it has come to an end, it's just gone sideways. But that is, that's mechanical value. That is not what uh, a fundamental value investor does. It's not a simple um, sort of uh, factor portfolio where you just say, I just want low price to book stocks. Yeah. So that opens up a couple of possibilities that distinction. The first one is simply that it is possible that in today's world, the simple factor component of it has been arbitraged away. It's very simple to do, it's not very hard. Mm. Um, but for instance, our experience at Lazard has been that you know, um, we haven't had a tailwind from, from value, but we've done much better than that. So the fundamental part, I expect, is still there. And the reason for that is that you can't really capture a lot of what the value philosophy in the simple ratios. I mean, if you just think, for example, about PEs, right? Mm -hmm. Mining companies, well, you, you buy them on high PEs and you sell them on low PEs, right? Um, so a simple sort of just screening is going to give you the reverse signal. Yeah. There are lots and lots of accounting issues. For instance, if you, if you go out there and look at the P on Transurban, well, it's something 70, 80 times. But that's not the cash flow. Right? Mm. Um, and in fact, people have said that perhaps one of the reasons, uh, a sort of a second theory, of, theory for perhaps value by value hasn't worked as well is that um, the uh, accounting is becoming a bit more uh, dominated by intangible assets. And perhaps that's one reason why the old price to book Yep. which was more relevant in a world um, of tangible assets, uh, doesn't work as well anymore. But of course, as I... So as the I, screens are a bit outdated. Correct. But as a fundamental investor, of course, you adjust for all that. Mm. You're, you're quite aware of all that. So you do allow for that. Um, so there are various reasons uh, that have been hypothesised. And the last one, I presume, I should, you know, that I should mention is simply the fact that um, we are the late st stages of a boom. And usually that's when value does have a hard time. Yep. There's clearly a bit of a tech flavour to this, to this one as well. Yep. So in that sense, uh, there's probably a cyclical component you know, you know, you know, to it there as well. Um, but you know, um, so you can't be absolutely definite, but I'd be very surprised if something had fundamentally changed simply because the value premium derives from human behaviour. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's changed in the last 10 odd years. Yep. So I'm, I'm not particularly perturbed by, uh, you know, by the fact that it hasn't done as well. In fact, if you look at, say, things like the dispersion of valuations across both the US market and the Australian market, they are very high. Mm -hmm. And they've risen over the last three, four years. As sort of, as in, in most booms, you do get that the boom is driven by one sort of favourite sector, whether it was the mining boom or it was the tech boom or it was consumer electronics booms in the past, for example. And that sector tends to eventually sort of uh, detach a bit from the rest of the market and uh, trade very expensive. Uh, so, and again, in this boom here, we do see that the dispersions have gone up a lot. So the dispersion of valuations is quite wide. Mm -hmm. And that's a great starting point for value because usually they eventually revert uh, when, you know, when the expectations are become too high or the market overall turns down. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I expect that will be part of the, the wash up here as well.
Okay, great. We're going to go from one boom to another. Mm -hmm. Um, We were laughing a little bit earlier about an article and and a quite in-depth piece that you wrote Mm -hmm. um, about residential property prices in Australia. gone viral on our website. I don't know if you've ever had that happen before, <laughs> Phil, but well done. Uh, certainly not. Um, but in that article, you labelled the, the economic effect of the decline in home prices as the critical financial issue in the Australian economy right now. Why is it so critical? Well, look, everything I say, I should preface by saying that um, what I'm talking about are risks because it's, it's, it's integral to the, to the philosophy of real investor that you don't know what's going to happen. In fact, that's one of the most important parts of value investing, realizing that you don't know. Um, and that uh, you know, the opportunities arise when people have extreme views where they think that they do. Yeah. Um, and the same applies here to, to economics. You can't forecast you know, recessions. Yeah. It's all highly nonlinear uh, uh, you know, and path dependent and all these things. So we don't know. What we can say, though, is that we do know a couple of things that we are pretty sure about. First one is that in this boom in Australia, the price to income of homes in Australia has risen to a level that was much higher than it was in the UK or Ireland or the US uh, pre-GFC. Mm-hmm. The debt levels have risen to a level that were much higher uh, than in those countries as well. And we clearly uh, uh, know that there was considerable evidence of speculation. Again, if you compare uh, you know, prevalence of, of, of interest only or investor lending in Australia, we quite extraordinarily high levels. Yeah. And we do know ever, ever since the Royal Commissioner uh, sort of released their data file in was it, last May, I think, that there were some issues with the underwriting processes yeah. as well. So we have all those things that we know. And lastly, and f- uh, sort of fourthly, we know that in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, these sort of starting conditions have led in, to some countries to these balance sheet recessions, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, uh, and the mechanics of these is that, you know, the, uh, households, see falling house prices, they worry about their balance sheet, they worry about their retirement plans, and they change their behaviour. They uh, go from gearing up to wanting to de-gear, they want to sell assets, they want to save more and repay, mm-hmm. and that becomes an enormous drag on the economy. And in some, in some of the Northern Hemisphere cases, uh, you know, that's resulted in really sharp recessions. Uh, but in, for instance, in Japan, it was just a long, drawn-out grind down mm. as people went from, you know, uh, um, you know, gearing up and perhaps spending a little bit out of, out of the asset price gains uh, to doing the reverse, wanting to repay. So that's, where the, that's clearly where the risk lies and that's the risk that the RBA references when they talk about you know, the risks arising from high household debt. Mm. You've done some analysis across a, a number of different um, uh, property decline, periods of decline that, led, that result in recession. And some of the things that you noted is that the, the, the term or the period that it takes the declines to reach top to bottom can be up to six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you also um, called out that there's a number of um, retrospective looking data points, employment is one of them, that you don't think are a great indicator of, of um, or, or, or signal for people to get a sense of where we are in the cycle if there's a decline in place. So I'd like to get your view um, on where you feel like we might be in that cycle, and what sort of forward-looking data points would you, would you be looking at? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, uh, first to, to sort of a slightly... And philosoph- you can, can caveat that with it's hard to predict the future. It is, and, 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 and I, what I was going to say is sort of a general point to start that one off was to say that, you know, uh, knowing that you can't forecast that sort of system, the best thing you can do is to look at other places where it has happened. Mm. Because, you know, when you have a very complex dynamical system like that, 
Forecasting it, I think, is a pretty hopeless task. But you can sort of take what's known as the outside view, what Daniel Kahneman calls the category view, yeah. and say, well, I can't do precise forecasting, which is far too complex for me to understand. But I can see what has happened in other places that gives me a guide. And that's what we did there. So we looked at um, those three Anglo economies I mentioned, as well as Spain and Japan. Mm -hmm. We've been through this process. Um, and you're absolutely right in saying that uh, typically these things take a long time. Again, just referencing the US, because that's, that's, that's the one that people know most about. You know, property prices peaked in 06 and bottomed in late 11, I think. Mm -hmm. They fell for about 5.7 years. And the average rate of decline was about 5.5% per annum, mm. uh, which, which sounds, doesn't sound like, like such a bad number. No. The damage comes from people changing their behavior. You know, um, uh, you know, there are some people who, you know, who, some of the bears who sort of sometimes seem to imply that as soon as property prices fall, people can't pay their mortgage. And I think they get that a little bit from the US where they have those ninja loans, you know, no income, no jobs, no assets. Yep. We don't have those. Um, the economic problem is not that people stop paying their mortgage at that point. The problem is that they actually do. In fact, they start paying more. Mm. Um, money that you know, doesn't go into spending anymore, it goes into saving, it gets squirreled away and, uh, for, for debt repayment. And then you get that impact on employment. And if you look at where we are, um, you know, with the typical timing of when the cuts come in, when the recession comes in and so forth, you know, we, uh, we've done those numbers. So far, it's been almost textbook style, right? In New South Wales, we peaked sort of late, middle of 17. Mm -hmm. And almost on cue by late 18, when you'd expect to start seeing results, uh, retail sales were down across New South Wales in the fourth quarter. And you looked at, you know, consumer confidence and business confidence and job ads and all these things. And in most cases, New South Wales was worst property prices there start falling earlier, it's got the biggest price and debt issues, and it's fallen furthest. Um, the really important question now, James, is um, is it enough to lead to secondary flows into employment? Because the first stage is, as I say, that people become prudent. They yeah. want to save more again, uh, because saving rate once more, household saving rate you know, fell to a very low level in, you know, while these property prices were going up. I mean, in Sydney, you know, there were three years there where the average household made more money on their property than they did through their wage. It has an effect on people's spending. They feel richer. Yeah. Now, as they start feeling poorer on the other side um, and they cut back their spending, is it enough to go into the labour market? And if it does, then you get that feedback system that can cause a real downturn because you get high unemployment. People start worrying not just about their house price, but their job. So they cut back more. And, and that whole thing can, can, can uh, develop in the way it developed in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. So far, I think, um, while you can't rightly say that employment is a, is a lagging indicator, the job ads are down, but even there, there's some mixed signals. So at the moment, it's not clear whether uh, you know, that second stage is sort of happening. Mm -hmm. But really, in my thinking, it comes down a lot to you know, um, the psychology of the market. And I think this is where... Um, the sort of traditional economist who you know, sees the economy in terms of levers and um, you know, rates and fiscal and all these sort of things as a mechanical system can get it slightly wrong. And you recall that was the big criticism of the economics profession after the GFC. It was all theoretical. It was theoretical, but it was all concerned with GDP. Mm -hmm. It didn't, never looked at the balance sheet. And that was the big thing that people missed and the economists were, you know, were rightly criticised for saying, you have a model, it doesn't involve the balance sheet at all. Um, 
Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 that balance sheet you know that drives you know that drives the adjustment you know that drives the adjustment there, and one element of that is that we're dealing with a market. Now you and I know um, that markets are not just based on discount rates and the simple sort of mechanics. There's something called sentiment, mm. and clearly over the last couple of years of the boom, certainly in Sydney and Melbourne, there was there was momentum. There was a market that went up because people thought it was going up. You know, um, it's the old sort of you know, uh, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. People buy it because it's going up, and it's going up because people are buying it. Yeah. Um, and the question becomes: Do we get in New South Wales, particularly in Sydney, of course, and in Melbourne, to the point where people's faith in the property market is shattered? If it is, then you have a big problem on your hand because the momentum reverses and turns negative, and then eventually people just want to sell. And they don't care about interest rates anymore. They don't care about all of the, any of these things. They just want to sell. And then you have a problem that is very hard to deal with. I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere, on, in those five countries I mentioned, on average, rates were cut from above five to below one. Did it prevent anything from happening? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the cost of money is irrelevant because who wants to borrow to buy a, a falling asset? No, no one wants to get under a falling asset. So monetary policy becomes pretty much ineffective. Fiscal policy still works. So that's something we've learned from the GFC um, you know, and, uh, and the events there. But it's very hard to stop a market once people's faith in it has been broken. And even you remember a couple of years ago when the Chinese government tried to stop their market from falling. Yeah. Well, even in China, you know, with a lot of policy tools available, you just can't do it. Right? The market will do what it wants to do. It has to so go through that, that, that point of capitulation. Correct. It ha you know, the euphoria is eventually followed by concern and then capitulation, and it just falls. And I've, I've got a lovely little story there um, you know, that you might appreciate. Uh, our, our former CEO in Sydney, um, Rapruge, and I don't know whether you know him, but um, he was also CEO for, for Asia. He spent a couple of years in Japan. And, you'll, and uh, you may or may not remember in the late 80s how everybody just followed the news in Japan and this enormous asset bubble. Yeah. Little, a, little, a little early. For, little I, bit, my, my, I was interested <laughs> in Steve War in the late 80s. I okay. wasn't following what was going on in Japan. But extraordinary property price yeah. and, 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 and co in commercial real estate bubble. And uh, a whole generation of Japanese households borrowed far too much money to buy property in the perfect faith that Japanese property only ever went up. Mm. And I remember Rob Pruge returning to Australia, I think it was 2006, seven and talking to him, and he had to mention that you could buy apartments in Tokyo for on an 8 or 9% yield. I said, that's extraordinary. What, what, what's the mortgage rate? And he said, about oh, 1%. I said, that's, that's phenomenal. Money for jam. It's an enormous carry. Why aren't people doing this? And he said, oh, it's simple. Every Japanese knows that property always falls <laughs> because they had watched 15 years of falling property prices. So you get this complete swing from you know, a complete faith in the market to eventually a complete loss of faith in the market. If you get to that stage, um, and as I say, it's not something you can just fix with rates or things like that, then you have a problem that is very hard to combat because people do want to dig here. And in all those countries that I spoke about, you can see, you know, when you look at their, their credit ratio, how the, the private economy started to dig, to dig here, and it's painful. Right? It's either, as I say, a nasty sh sharp recession or it's a long drawn out grind, um, uh, but it's very hard to avoid the consequences of the prior boom. Well, we've been talking about um you know, some of the, the views at a, at a broader level, I guess, um, and this will be our final question on property because there's some other things <laughs> to get into. Yeah. But I guess where the rubber hits the road is, um, you know, are your views or how are your views on um, the flow and effects of property 
uh, reflected in the way that you're investing in your portfolio? Look, that's another level of difficulty up on, on top of the uncertainty because, um, as I said at the start, it's really important to realise that, that you don't know. I think it was, you know, it was John Kenneth Galbraith who said there are two types of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. Yeah. So you've got to be very careful there. So um, the way we like to think about it, it's a risk. And you know, a year ago we described it as a tail risk. Today we say it's probably more than a tail risk, it's a, it's a real live risk. Mm. You only have to look at the uh, bond yield to tell you that there are other markets who are focusing on this and saying, yep, there are some problems out there. Yeah. But we see it as a, as a risk. So. Um, it informs our view, for example, in terms of how much we want to be in banks, because they're clearly enormously exposed to that sort of thing. And um, what you normally look for in investing, because there's always uncertainty, is a position of asymmetric payoffs. So, you, you know, for a value investor, it's buying something that is so cheap and that has such bad expectations and such bad news priced into the stock that you can buy it and you have a beautifully asymmetric payoff. If things really are that bad, it's okay, it's about fair value. But if it isn't, if it's slightly less bad, you can make money. And in some ways, you know, in the case of the banks, I, I view them as being the other way around. If things are good and we just grind through it and so forth, then you still have all the other issues that banks have, uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know, uh, credit growth. It's not going to be what it used to be and therefore the operational leverage and all those things. Regulation is still going to be greater. Capital requirements are going to be greater. The returns are going to be less. And all of those issues are still going to be there. If, however, we do have a downturn mediated through one of these you know, balance sheet recessions, then you can have, you have, a loss or you have the risk of a loss of, uh, of, of, permanent, you know, of permanent capital. So, yeah. so in that sense, from a portfolio perspective, we know we can't forecast this, and our central case is that there's not going to be a disaster, because how could we forecast that? But we're wary from a portfolio management you know, side in saying we want to avoid certain risks. And what we have done in various occasions uh, last year or so is you know, when we've had a choice between a cyclical stock that looks interesting and a defensive stock that looks interesting, well, let's buy the defensive because you know, that there are some possible headwinds out there. And we're quite aware of the fact that you know, when you avoid a risk like that, you don't always get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't always get paid for it. You know, in, in early, in late 15... You just don't lose as much, is that right? No, I think it's more a case of, you know, in, early, in, in late 15, early 16, for example, you know, we bought heavily into the mining sector after not liking them for, for so many years before that during the boom. But we said, look, let's be very cautious. There could be a big downturn, so let's put that in. And we bought the safer, lower cost sort of, sort of miners on the assumption that we need a margin of safety because we don't know. Uh, and it was to protect our, our investors from the possibility that if you bought the higher cost, more leveraged miners, and it does turn out to be really bad, you've got some serious problems on your hands, right? Yeah. So in that sense, we left something on the table because you know, we had a fantastic 16. Uh, due, due to buying to the mining sector, but we could have made more. So it's a, it's a risk we avoided for the clients that in the end didn't pay off because it never eventuated. And in some ways, this may be the same. Perhaps the worst doesn't happen. Everything is more or less okay. But I think you have to do that as an investor um, because you don't know in advance which ones will pay off and which ones not. But if you do it all the time, in the long run, you'll have a lower risk portfolio and value portfolios tend to be low beta, partly for that reason. Mm -hmm. And sooner or later they do happen, and then you've done a, a great job in terms, in terms of returns as well. Yeah. You mentioned it just before you talked about the bond yields. In Australia, the 10-year has collapsed. It's down at 1.87%. What's your take on the move in, in, in the 10-year bond? And, and, and what are some of the implications for equity investors? 
Look, I mean, the first thing to say, it's just extraordinary, uh, 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 that rate. I mean, in 230 years of US history, where we have, a longer, where we have longer data, um, apart from 2000, you know, uh, the low in 16, that would be the lowest bond yield in US history too. Mm. I, I know that in Australia, I've got 140 years of data. It is the low, lowest bond yield by a long shot. And that includes the 1890s depression and the 1930s depression. In other words, even including depression eras, this is much lower than we've had in the past. So it's extraordinary. Mm. I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere, in this cycle, we reached lows in yields that are not just decade lows or even multi-century. In some cases where we have the data, it's 800 years, 1,000 years and so forth, and probably in recorded history. Lowest rates in recorded history. So we start off from a very, very extreme position. And there are a couple of reasons for that. We could probably go into them. But I think in the Australian context, there's clearly at the moment a bit of a difference between, on one hand, the bond market telling us that uh, there are some real headwinds out there. And on the other hand, the equity market having risen very nicely in the, in the first quarter with the, re with the rebound in the US. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to sort of illustrate that, today the Reserve Bank of Australia has a mandate to lose you real money in the 10-year government bond. Because it's one point eight or whatever. And it's inflation targets. It says two, two and a half. Yeah. It's their job to deliver you a 70 bit loss in real terms every year while you hold this. Mm. Uh, clearly the market is telling you that they don't think they're going to get that inflation um, and that there are some real issues out there that you know, mean that that bond yield may be justified after all. So it's, it's a big signal and we could go into a, a long debate as to, you know, um, What's the cause of that? And to put it really briefly, the balance sheet recession is one of those. Yep. Balance sheet recessions are really toxic. Um, they, are, you know, they cause a lot of problems. They last for a very long time. And they do make monetary policy pretty much ineffective. So your lever goes to zero, but not, you know, not much happens. Um, but certainly, it's a warning signal for the Australian equity market. Uh, but as I say, uh, only the future will tell. I feel like we've been having a real bearathon since we, we started this conversation. We have a bit. Take, take, take a pause because <laughs> just before um, we came into this uh, discussion, I was actually on an asset allocation tool and playing around with some projected um, returns for equity markets. And it was surprising to us to find out on a projected 10-year view, the, the Australian equities and alongside emerging market equities were the two markets on a 10-year view that were going to present um, you know, sort of the best, the best returns. Now, these are forecast returns. So that means that there is reasons. There is some, you know, this, this um, uh, portfolio partners website talked about, um, you know, presented data that was relatively a more positive picture for Australia. So my question to you is, let's talk about less about the things that you're not investing in and talk about what are some of the, the opportunities that you are finding because you do have to invest. That's your job. You run Absolutely. concentrated portfolios. Look, I mean, I, I'd say two things about this. The first one is that I actually agree that the Australian market, from a very long-term perspective, I have a nice 130-year model mm. of, you know, of the yields and then the PEs and so forth, um, is not that overvalued. It's a little bit on the expensive side. So um, what I'm talking about here in the Australian market, what we're talking about is more a cyclical view, and you'll, it'll recover on the other side. Uh, I would contrast that with my view that the US is quite expensive, yep. and I think the expectations there would have to they be... They were low, they were in the fours. Significantly lower, years, right, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah, you know, so, uh, so we're over all this gloom, and that comes from talking to a value investor. We, we're known for being we're bearish done with and it. borrowed. Clear, clear the decks. Um, 
But yeah, I, I would actually agree that in, in Australia, you, the Australian equity market isn't that bad. And I would hope, for instance, that um, if you can stay away from some of those obvious risk areas, I think you should be able to do okay. And um, when it comes to you know, co you know, what we just discussed, the bond yield, in Australia, if you are an investor, it is hard to do without the equity income yield because it's the only yield that's left. Mm. So um, now I think if you can invest defensively in Australian equity and carefully, I think that's probably not a bad place to be actually. So I, I don't actually disagree with that view. Okay. Um, well, let's get a bit more specific. Yeah. I did ask you to, to have a think about something that from a, from a long side that yeah. um, is an example of how you think about investing, um, talks to your value style, but takes into consideration the current environment, something where you've got some conviction, which is yep. one of the styles, you know, one of the, um, the attributes of how you invest is, you know, it's a relatively concentrated portfolio and, and, and the top positions, when I look at them, um, you know, big positions pretty punch. relative to the, to the benchmark. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking it, you're, you're, you're someone that's not afraid to have a view, so I'd love to hear one. Look, I, I've made it easy for myself in the sense that I, I, I thought I'd talk about Illumina. Um, and there's a nice backstory because it's always done, has already done well, but we think it's actually one of the still cheaper things around. Mm -hmm. um, so if I just, uh, uh, I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but I just to just briefly introduce what, what it does. Yep. So uh, Illumina is, is just a holding company uh, down in Melbourne, um, and it owns 40% in the AWAC Global uh, Bauxite Illumina joint venture with Alcoa. It's run by Alcoa. Yep. The joint venture's been around since the 60s, a very long time, in the current form since the 90s or so. And they have very high quality assets. It's mostly the assets in Western Australia that are, that are really good. Mm. Because if you want to be a good bauxite alumina business, you need three things. You need cheap energy, and they have it. In fact, the, the Bunbury pipeline was partly built for this project. Um, you need good quality uh, bauxite. And in, in the case of, of, of alumina, they have very low impurity bauxite. Concentration isn't that high, but the impurity is very low, which is very important in, mm -hmm. the, in the processing later. Um, and lastly, it's a bulk, so you need to be close to a port, and they are. Yeah. So these are really high quality assets, and they've been around for a long time. And I think it's perhaps, um, it might be pushing it a little bit too far to compare them with the Pilbara, but they're in that sort of general class, very low uh, 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 cost, high quality assets. Uh, in 2012, the company which had traded at above $6 pre-GFC ended up at 60 cents. Uh, because there was a whole conspiracy of factors that ran against it. Um, some were self-inflicted. They, they were, uh, like everybody else, they were carried away by the boom and invested far too much mm -hmm. and wasted most of their money in Brazilian expansions uh, that, that, that turned out to be worthless. Um, they uh, suffered from the fact that there was an iron ore boom on, which propelled our dollar to you know, $1.10 yep. uh, almost. And very hard to make money at that, at that exchange rate, and the aluminium price was really depressed, and it was alumina price was linked to that aluminium price. Now, the interesting thing about it, and it sort of typically illustrates the value, but what a value investor does, the company actually made no money in 2012. And clearly, the market, by pricing at 60 cents, thought this was somehow structural, at least in part, mm. because why otherwise would, would, would it have traded at that price? Now, we had a theory that. Um, uh, well, the aluminium price couldn't always be depressed, that the dollar at that level wasn't sustainable and that was going to make an enormous difference to the profitability. And lastly, we had the view, and this is still playing out today, that um, for historical reasons, the alumina price was linked to the aluminium price. 
This is a little bit like sort of, um, you know, if you imagine, you know, that the iron ore price was linked to the steel price. Mm -hmm. And this was a historical artifact back from the days when Alcoa dominated the industry and they had, and they made more money at the, at the downstream aluminium side and also they made it in Western countries where they wanted the profit and so forth. And that started to break down and as the new contracts have rolled, um, the linkage, the implied linkage now is much, much better. Much more profit is going to stay upstream. And if you look at markets around the world, typically that's where the profit ends up, right? Steel is an awful business. I know it's a fantastic business if you have the right asset. Mm -hmm. and, and really, in many ways, the, um, this was a case where the upstream assets were being hindered from making the money because of this traditional linkage and it's breaking down. Stock has gone up a lot, uh, to 40 to 50 these days, and it's just paid you a 32 cent fully frank dividend. So, so on the 2012 share price, that was a 50% net uh, yield. Wow. Um, we don't think it can quite sustain those sort of levels. There was a really nice spike in the, in the alumina price. But we do know that China is short good bauxite. In Hebei province, they have serious uh, issues with, with impurities. Um, so it is a, it's, it's structurally well, well positioned because they need that uh, 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 bauxite or the, or the alumina. Um, and as you know, aluminium is a metal that grows on average faster than some of the more mature metals, base metals, you know, like uh, copper, zinc and, and, and nickel. Um, so we don't think that the current profit, profit bonanza might be quite sustainable, but we do think it's a stock that should trade definitely with a three in front of it uh, in this market. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, something like another 30, 40% is what we really expect from this. So that's one we really like. At one stage we had you, know, you spoke about pretty big positions. One stage we had close to 10% of our fund in Illumina. Yep. We're a little bit lower now because some of the gains have been made and the trade-off isn't as good, but it remains one of the top 10 uh, positions that we have. And yeah, uh, when you talk about some of those risks that we spoke about earlier um, and how that might affect the stock market, one important thing to realize is that stock market is enormously heterogeneous, right? If we get a downturn in Australia, for example, um, there will be stocks that benefit enormously. And some of those stocks are, at uh, uh, the first order, the exporters. Yep. Because the currency goes to 60 cents or 55 cents. BHP and Rio and Alumina and all these companies, they're mint money. Yep. Because their cost base just falls and they sell into a global market you know, which hasn't had that shift. Mm. Um, then there are all the companies that you know, have business overseas, you know, from QB and Amcor and, and Brambles and, and all these companies, maybe just have a translation effect. So, Stock market has lots of different things to it, and just because you might be worried about the domestic economy doesn't mean you can't find good things in it. Yeah, great. Um, I've got two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, my first one is, can you talk me through an investing lesson you've picked up that you think's made you a better investor, but you had to learn it the hard way? Um, well, um, I'm unfortunately embarrassed for choice, James. <laughs> uh, you have a lot of those. But look, I thought I'd go for um, what is, I think, still our very worst investment ever, and we got it wrong twice. So that's that's not good. That's the that's the cardinal sin. Isn't <laughs> it? Make, it. Make, make it make it make the mistake once, but don't make it again. Well, it was a slightly different one. Uh, this is this is Fairfax, right? And um, you seem to have quite a love affair with media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, um, it hasn't been a good run of, of, of late there. But we first, the first mistake we made, I uh, should describe, is, is when we held it in the, in the tech boom. Right? So pre-tech boom, this was a $3, $4 stock. Mm. And then we in the tech boom, and the market convinced itself that Fairfax was one of the big winners from the internet, because it had content. 
Yeah. And uh, you know, in '99, when the tech boom was on, they renamed their sort of online uh, division F2. I mean, that alone was worth several uh, people. Sounds points, pretty right? good. Yeah. Correct. A little Sounds bit intangible, but definitely worth something. Sounds very techy. <laughs> um, and the stock went to six dollars. And we had we didn't own News Corporation or Telstra, any of these TMT stocks, but we had this one, and we made the um, stupid mistake, really, in retrospect, of saying, look. It's 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 not that expensive. It's not as expensive as some of these other ones, and you know, um, we nice to have one of them at least from a portfolio perspective and all these things, because we I think we knew that it was probably um, hard to justify the valuation, but it were, were extraordinary times, and we didn't sell it the way we should have. Um, it then just fell back to the old price, but then throughout the sort of uh, uh, first decade uh, of of you know of the century, it became increasingly clear that they were actually going to be a big loser. Um, you know, from the internet. And as you know, it was the fact that the classifieds, the rivers of gold went yep. online. They had competition, the cost was low, uh, the, the price was much, much lower. And we unfortunately spent far too much time constantly cutting our numbers and saying, oh, okay, it's got worse, but we've captured it now, still looks good. Mm. And then doing it again a year later. And um, so it was, a, it was a, in, in retrospect, an absolutely awful investment. Um, we certainly learned a fair few things from it. So I can give you a short list of things that we learned from it. Um, and, uh, and look, I presume they are, the, you, know, the, you know, the first one is that, and there's a general point, structural change is the biggest challenge for the value investor because we love history. We love saying, look, what has happened before is more likely to happen in the future than something that has never happened before, right? This whole, whole thing of learning from history, right, rather than repeating it. It's incredibly valuable, but it, 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 it has a problem with structural change. We know that. Uh, and that was one of those cases where we got uh, completely caught. Right? Mm. Didn't realise that you know, the mastheads, you know, the metro papers, were going to suffer quite so much in this transition. Because originally the thesis had been that they have the content, and that's, you know, that's the value of the, of, of the masthead, and why should that go away just because it's distributed differently. Yeah. But you know, we all know what happened. I think the second thing we learned was that um, when you have a business that is competitive, James, and, and another competitor comes into the market, it hurts, but you know, it's not the end of the world. But if you have a business that is really privileged and has a big moat, and then it gets competition, you can get a catastrophic decline in profit, because in some ways it has over-earned in the past, right? Mm. So in Fairfax case, it was those, those, those rivers of gold that classifieds. There was only one marketplace you could go to, and they could basically charge pretty much whatever they liked, as long as it was vaguely reasonable. And they were making excess profits, but you couldn't see it because it's been going on for 30, 40 years. Mm. When, that, when that moat was breached, the profit didn't fall a little bit, it just absolutely collapsed. Yeah. And I think that's something that we've learned. And again, it makes perfect sense. In retrospect, the bigger the moat, the worse the problem you have when it gets breached. Um, so those are some of those things. The last one I presume is just uh, you know, this idea that when you get a structural shift and it coincides with a cyclical event, it, it, is, it is pretty hairy. Mm. Um, and you know, there are a couple of examples that you can sort of point to. Um, but you know, uh, we learned that there, but we, we saw it again later, for example, you, know, uh, you might recall how the big shifts in the UK supermarket mm. uh, industry, yep. you know, post GFC. And when, you, and when you go to the UK and you ask them, what happened to Tesco? What happened to, the, to this whole sector? Well, what happened was that you know, the British shopper was fairly steady in his habits. You know? 
and they identify it with their, with their supermarket. You know, I'm a Sainsbury shopper, and that person's a Waitrose shopper, and the, Tesco. I'm a Tesco man sort of type thing. And they went to their normal supermarkets, and then the GFC hit. And suddenly people started shopping around. And they went into the Aldi for the first time. And they came out thinking, actually, that that was cheap and the product's good. Mm. And market share suddenly started shifting much faster than they usually do. Um, and this informs sort of our view now if you worry about an Australian downturn. Because there is a shift online, we all know that, but Australia is sort of pretty much behind that. Um, and to a large degree, inertia uh, sort of slows that transition down. But you get a downturn and suddenly people say, well, I do want to buy this, but let me just search around, look around. More motivated to find it. More price. motivated to shop around, price check, compare. And then they do end up on an online, an online site. And once they've registered and everything's set up and the credit card details are in there, well, you just go back and click, right? Yeah. So you can get big market share shifts when that happens. So when we look at discretionary retailers, when we also look at retail property in Australia, it's in the back of our mind that uh, there is clearly enormous adverse shifts structurally. And you, you look at Korea and China, which are most advanced in this, you know, 30 plus percent online. I mean, it's triple than in Australia and it's growing every year. We still, you know, on that sigmoidal curve, we still don't seem to be on the slowing down end. So who knows how far this goes? And we look at that and we also think, you know, to come back to, to the Fairfax example, in Australia, you know, the landlord has had all the power. You know, it's been a business with an enormous moat. Uh, and I'm particularly talking about Westfield, of course. Yeah. And the moat has been our zoning laws, right? incredibly hard in Australia to just start up a retailer the way you do it in the US or in Germany, for example. So in Australia, the retailers take a much larger share of the cake than they do overseas. So for a specialist retailer in Australia, you know, typically occupancy might be 17-18%, and it's 9% in the US. Mm. But it means two things. When the moat is breached and you get competition, you have a lot more to lose. And in Australia, the Bricks and mortar retailer, in many ways, he's already behind compared to online, much more than in the US because his rent is higher. Yeah. So the vulnerability there, you know, all these things I've talked about in Fairfax sort of all come together. You know, you have a structural shift, you have a, a starting point which was very privileged, and you may get a coincident cyclical event. So we really do worry about retail property. And while, you know, and cap rates have started creeping up a little bit in that sector, and some of the stocks have done poorly, and usually I think a value investor would say, look, the style's starting to look interesting. We're a long way away from that because we can see those risks. Yeah, great. Very interesting. Final question. Here it is, and it needs to be a quick one. I noted that you um, had, uh, you've done a lot of reading. For our viewers out there, if you could recommend one or two papers or books that you think are absolute oh. must-reads, uh, uh, can you give me, give me one or two of, that would be top of your shelf? Um, there are an awful lot of good books. Um, let me try two, um, because they're a little bit different. Um, I, I don't know whether you've ever read Where the Customers Yachts. I've heard of the book. I you've haven't heard of it? it? Well, it's written by a, a very, very disillusioned fellow who joined Wall Street in the late 20s and saw the, and saw the decline and crash. Mm. And it is one of the rare investment books that is not only uh, preaches a lot of uh, sound things, but it is incredibly funny. Okay. It's That's actually fine. a seriously funny book. Good. And I think the other one that I can't go past is, uh, I mentioned John Kenneth Galbraith earlier, and he wrote a short history of financial euphoria. I don't know whether you know that one. It's a 
very slim little volume, so you can literally... Sounds like my kind of book. You can really literally read in the <laughs> afternoon. But the first 20 pages, James, of that are just a phenomenally well-written and wise exposition of what the financial cycle is about. Great. It's just, I, I remember starting, you know, re- reading this, uh, it was being 90s originally, and I started underlining, you know, things that are really, these are quotes, I thought. And I ended up covering the first 20 pages almost. It's just beautifully written. Sounds and, like a very timely piece to be reading And right it's now. a very timely piece because while well, in the rest of the world, you know, the debt cycle crested in the GFC. Uh, it hasn't happened here yet, but we may get there. Great. Phil, thank you for your time. Great to catch thank up. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, and I really enjoyed our discussion. I have too. Thank you.